0: Hello, I'm Rebecca Arno. I am with the Barton Institute for Community Action in Denver, Colorado. And I'm a longtime member of the network. I'm a former chair of the network board. And I am absolutely thrilled to be here today to speak with Joy Harjo. Um, I'll introduce her in a moment and we'll get to hear from her. Uh, but before we begin our conversation, I would like to acknowledge. Um, that those of us in the United States and Canada are currently on lands that were stolen from Indigenous people, and that we need to recognize this and honor this history. In Denver, I am currently on lands um, that belonged to the Arapaho, Ute, and Cheyenne tribes, and over 200 different tribes now live in the state of Colorado. Um, So, I encourage you to find out what land you might be, whose land you might be on at this moment. So here we are. Joy Harjo is the first Native American to be appointed as United States Poet Laureate. She's an internationally known activist, writer, um, musician, and a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Joy, we are so honored to have you with us today. Um, I'm
1: honored to be here. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. And I would like to just start with a big question that I'm guessing you hear pretty frequently as the poet laureate of the United States. We are in such difficult times right now. We have a pandemic. We are finally, well, maybe not finally. At any rate, we are attempting to reckon with um, some incredible injustice that has happened over the course of uh, US history um, in terms of race relations. And many now are finding that poetry is um, like medicine to them, at least I am finding that. And I'm wondering what you think the role of poetry is in times like these.
1: Well, the role of you know poetry is an oral art, and it's um, it's something I think that only humans do, and it has a particular it has particular purpose, and it uh, a poem can hold any almost anything. I have found poem can hold time, can hold different kinds of time. A poem can hold grief that is unbearable. It can hold joy that can also be almost unbearable. It can hold, a poem can hold history, even pieces of history, shards of history, something that's been broken apart and needs to be put back together. And we come to poetry at those times of transformation in our lives, like birth, a a, a huge moment of transformation coming from one world to another in a very vulnerable and sacred moment. And we come to poetry during Mary, falling in love, falling out of love, a lot of poems and songs for that, and for uh, marriage, for for passing from this world, for praise, for um, poetry can hold what we cannot hold with words.
0: I was thinking that at at this uh, beginning of our conversation, I would love for the folks in the um, in the audience who haven't known your poetry, to ask you to share a poem that is one of my favorites, and it's called "Once the World Was Perfect." Would you be willing to do that?
1: Yes, I will. I, I'll read that poem, and that's poem. This poem is loosely based on a Muskogee Creek origin story about emerging up from probably another world that we humans destroyed. (laughs) But we're (laughs) emerging from the dark. And so it assures me, we will emerge from this this place, this wounding. We have have a lot of work to do here. But um, there we were in the dark. So in our tribal nation, we have a lot of clans. You're, you know, we're related, like I'm related to the, it's called the tiger clan, but it's the big cat clan. So I'm related to them and the Wind Clan. And the Wind Clan people were the first, they said that came through the opening and then the others followed. And um, so this is called Once the World Was Perfect. Probably that origin story happened around a time very much like this. Once the world was perfect and we were happy in that world, then we took it for granted Discontent began a small rumble in the earthly mind. Then doubt pushed through with its spiked head. And once doubt ruptured the web, all manner of demon thoughts jumped through. We destroyed the world we had been given for inspiration for life. Each stone of jealousy, each stone of fear, greed, envy, and hatred put out the light. No one was without a stone in his or her hand. There we were right back where we had started. We were bumping into each other in the dark and now we had no place to live because we didn't know how to live with each other. Then one of the stumbling ones took pity on another and shared a blanket. The spark of kindness made a light. The light made an opening in the darkness. Everyone worked together to make a ladder. A wind clan person climbed out first into the next world and then the other clans the children of those clans their children, their children, their children, their children, all the way through time to now. To you.
0: Thank you so much. That poem brings to mind how much of your work seems to uh, expand in time to deal with generations upon generations while also being very grounded in the here and now Um, do you think about time when you start working with a poem or the idea of a poem how do you think about time how do you work with time
1: i think what dreams and then what poetry has taught me one of the one of your I would say tools but it's also one of your um materials when writing poetry is time. I mean certainly you deal like a musician you know with phrasing and timing there is that element but there's also I I think in the in the best poems there's always a sense of eternity or timelessness mm-hmm. as well as the 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 hardcore earth you know blanket you know, all this physicality of the world in which we are living, the physical material world in which we're living.
0: Um, In another of my favorite poems of yours that uh, really brings that to light, the idea of the physical world holding eternity is the poem, um, Perhaps the World Ends Here. And I know we just heard a poem, but can we hear another one?
1: (laughs) That's cool. I'll just read if you want me to. Oh,
0: (laughs) that would be great.
1: Yeah, this one, um, often I have stories, well, the poem began with this or this or that, but this one, I don't remember how it began. I just followed it. And I think a lot of people have the conception that you know poets just, they're inspired or they do crazy things to get inspired. And then they write about it, but it's not always like that. So that maybe there's a little of that, but mostly it's for me, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm following that voice. Sometimes it's a voice of the ancestors. Sometimes it could be a plant or something else, or even a memory from an ancestor that lives in my bones or somewhere, or I'm watching a grandchild or something that I follow something. It could be a movement. It could be, I work a lot with rhythm. It could be a rhythm that I'm following. So this one, I just remember following it. And then here it is. And then I think, well, thank you. Doesn't mean it was done. Once I got the first draft, I go back and revise and revise. And it's like you watch a wood, somebody sculpting wood or stone. Poetry is like that too. So then I, it's there. The spirit of it is set into place and then i make a good place for it to live perhaps the world ends here the world begins at a kitchen table no matter what we must eat to live the gifts of earth are brought in prepared set on the table so it has been since creation and it will go on we chase chickens or dogs away from it babies teethe at the corners they scrape their knees under it It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table, we gossip. We call enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us and at our poor falling down selves as we put ourselves back together once again at the kitchen table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating at the last sweet bite.
0: (sighs) So beautiful. Thank you
1: so much. I think of the world as a kitchen table and that we're all really at the kitchen table university. (laughs) So much we learn at that, that, you know, sort of the family origin place. Yeah. On at the center or the fire at the center of the house, you know, the fire in the stove, you know, the stove, that's the center, that's the fire there. You know? So you
0: mentioned this a moment ago about the oral tradition of uh, your people and how that has influenced you. Mm-hmm. And the written word uh, has really been a more uh, recent phenomenon in uh, the storytelling tradition of your people. And I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, how you work with the oral tradition and the written tradition together because I very much hear in your in your work the rhythms and the musicality that you've talked about. Um, and I'm wondering if you read aloud to yourself as you're writing or if you can talk about that interplay of the oral and written.
1: The yes, in fact, well, right now I'm in the last revision of my new memoir that will be out next September. Called that I've written during the pandemic, called "Poet Warrior: A Call for Love and Justice." And so the last revisions of it, I read. I read it aloud to someone else. I've learned there's three different levels of reading aloud. There's one where you just read aloud to yourself, and I always tell anyone writing, whether it's a paper or anything. Read it aloud, because then you'll catch. It's all about listening. And then um, the next level is reading to someone else. And the third one, which is a little more tricky, or you find you have to be willing to be humiliated and shamed is to read something new aloud to, to the public. <laughs> you know, there you catch everything you know that, that needs to be changed or, or shifted. But yes, I think most of the literature in the world is oral. Yeah. If you think about it, written literature historically has been available only to a few. And some of our biggest uh, epic texts are not in are not in English language. And some things aren't meant to be in English language. They belong in a certain place and time. But I I think I've been, you know, as a musician and then I was writing, I was thinking about it and write, writing about it in my memoirs. I was going through and revising after, as I listen, is that when I went to Indian boarding school in the late sixties, it wasn't the usual Indian boarding school. It was an art. It was an experiment We in Indian I'm calling it Indian. That's what we call ourselves in an in Indian education that, um, instead of the usual, we still had the military system in place but we also had the best native artists teaching us. And I didn't take poetry then, I didn't take writing, I was into, I was drawing and then I, because I said I will never get on a stage, I wound up performing and being part of one of the first all native drama and dance troupes. But um, as I was thinking about it the other day, it's that we were the generation, we were still fresh from oral cultures that we didn't have when i was growing up you know there was a point where we got a television not everybody had you know there was a point for that i guess people were listening to radio and there was a lot of people talking to each other that was the s- central you know storytelling it was in person i still like that a lot i still like that my memoir opens with sitting with my the old ones i call and now years later i'm sitting just like my aunt and then um, my cousin's father were sitting talking about the same things years later. You know, there's that. But I, I remember thinking as I was writing that we were still close to those cultures. So yes, we had some brilliant storytellers and poets, but when it came to the English classes, you know, what relationship did we have to a fourth grade reader that we were given to read, because it was assumed we weren't, we couldn't read very well, about a banker sweeping, you know, about a banker. It's like, (laughs) yeah, our arts classes were excellent. You know, we had some of the best arts teachers, but I was thinking about how close we were and how in, because of colonization, you know, some of that, has been disturbed, but it's there. It's always there. It has been there. It will be there after all of this is gone.
0: That's a very hopeful statement. <laughs> and you, uh, performers and, and poets and musicians are the ones who carry that forward for us. Um, mm-hmm. So that no matter what happens in the tumult of society, we have that uh, to carry forward. Um, which is
1: quite beautiful. Yeah. The arts carry art, the spirit of our peoples. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, the arts are, um, yeah, that's, that's part of their role. They, they inspire us and they take us into the future, so to speak. And they carry, that's how we know who we are. You know, by looking back on the, what we created and what we imagined and what was being imagined through us as intermediaries of sorts or as we serve that. I think we're all in service. It's not just so-called service people, but all of us are in service.
0: Earlier, can you share again the name of your new memoir?
1: Poet Warrior, A Call for Love and Justice.
0: So in that, I hear that the poet is not a reflector. A poet is a warrior. A poet is an actor. Um, And a poet has a role in bringing forth a just society. And I'm wondering if you could talk um, with our audience who are around the world, all interested in using words for social good, about how you see
1: yourself as a poet as a social justice warrior. First of all, I like the title. I didn't come up with it. My editor did. You're <laughs> always going to call it for justice for love. That's how I used to always sign my sign things. But after reading it, that's there's the character, there's she said it's it breaks, it's I've totally reimagined a memoir. But there's a poet voice and there's a coming of age ceremony that happens in the book that surprised me. And she goes from being given a name, girl warrior to becoming poet warrior. But I came to writing poetry. I was not, I, I, people weren't poets where I grew up. Everybody, my mother cooked and cleaned. My father came from oil money, Indian oil money from, um, and my, you know, my grandmother and my aunt were painters and, you know, they were tribal leaders and, and speakers. And my mother's people were, or musicians, you know, musicians and poets, and had no money. But um, I went to. Um, so I didn't know I was going to be a poet. That I, I, I was going to be a painter. I was not a speaker. I did not have a way with words. I still don't feel like I do necessarily. I've been uh, with practice, and with a lot of patience by my spiritual teachers, <laughs> you know, here and there. Uh, But um, I started writing poetry as a student involved in native rights movements in New Mexico as part of the Kiva Club, which was about, it started out as a, it was uh, instituted as a social club, but it became in the very early seventies, a club too. We looked around our community and these are our communities, not just the university community. And how can you stand by when you see um racial prejudice and and you see your people you know being hurt and and you see this we had to we we made you know we we went to work and that's how my poetry i don't think there was a there was a point i know what broke it open for me was to realize there were native poets i've later learned yes we did have native poets they were not in our textbooks but um I got to, I was around, I wound up being in, I was in Albuquerque where the school was, University of New Mexico. There were poets, you know, I, I got to be there with Leslie Silco, major Laguna Pueblo novelist, poet, Simon Ortiz, Acoma poet, Jam, Jim Welch, I knew about him, uh, from up in Montana, Blackfeet poet. And I was around, it was the time of the, the beginning of the multicultural Uh, literary movements, and with Ishmael Reed Mm -hmm. taking us all into a circle, you know, and I was, I, Jane Cortez became a major influence with her poetry. So, um, so I learned that through that, that the power, you know, I mean, we can all come indigenous peoples, we come from a place that words, we know words have power. And so the poetry just took hold of me. I did not expect it. In fact, I was pretty reluctant. I love painting, I didn't have to talk to anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I was painting in a socially justice way. I wanted to paint warriors, but warriors as people whose names you would never know. Like the like a woman who would get up early, early before dawn and cook and make lunches for everybody and then go to work, go to school and you know, do her part, but no one would know her, might know her name.
0: Well, you have uh, brought those voices to many of us. And let's talk a little bit about how you're also bringing the voices of those other Native poets that you discovered and the Native artists you've discovered to the world. Now, um, can you talk both about the anthology that you've um, edited and then also about the project you have coming up.
1: Yes. Um, Yes. I, uh, approached Norton about doing a, there's never been a comprehensive Norton anthology of native literature. And I was told, well, it would be too expensive to do a literature because of permissions fees, but we would love a a book of poetry, an anthology of poetry. So I looked around. I was teaching at that point at a school I'm I'm on my own now but and a wonderful University of Tennessee. I looked around. And I thought, what resources do I have? I'm so busy. I'm working on a music. I'm working on all these projects and I'm teaching my students. So they were the first people I pulled into and, and taught started teaching classes and how basically how do you put together a Norton anthology and in native literature. So they were learning and we had all kinds of speakers and permissions editors, all kinds, so they could see how the whole process worked. And then I pulled together the experts. They were all native poets. So the anthology, I am not the only editor. I am one of many, many editors. There was the, the core group, was is a Lee Choctaw writer, playwright, uh, thinker, philosopher extraordinaire. Uh, J- Jennifer Elise Forrester, who went to Muskogee Creek, who as a child was knew about my poetry and came up being a poet. And then we had uh, we divided the anthology. It's a comprehensive anthology of uh, Native Nations poetry from time immemorial to the present. So we have six geographical areas. We didn't want to go by political borders and rather geographical areas. So we have six geographical areas and contributing editors and regional advisors and everyone. So all of us had a part. And it's the first time this has happened. I can't believe in you know all this time, this is the first time we have a comprehensive anthology called When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, a Norton Anthology of Native Nations Poetry. And yes, the title is long. That's my fault but i think i think an anthology of like that like that of that size um it needs a title <laughs> you know an anthology like that needs a title like that and and um first we only had a few pages where we said well the norton textbook people said well people don't read anymore their 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 attention spans have have shrunk with texting so we're not making the anthologies as large. So we're only you can only have 300 pages. And I said, wait a minute. We have over 540 federally recognized tribal groups, and that's not everybody. Um, so they upped the page. Where it came out to four something pages, 400, a little over 400 pages. It's a wonderful,
0: uh, incredible document that you've you've pulled together, and now you're taking it online so what is what is the next
1: step that's a second anthology <laughs> yeah, it says poet laureate there's you have a project and and my term was renewed so i wanted to do i wanted to do a ultimately a world map of indigenous poetry and I said wait a minute we have you know there's capacity you have to think about capacity how much to, you know, so there's a small staff at the poetry and Lead, wonderful staff at the Poetry and Literature Center led by Rob Casper. And when I when I went to work with this position, I said, Library of Congress. It's the biggest public library in the world. And people anywhere in the world can join, you know, can get a library card. And I said, I want to go, I want to see what's here. I've always wanted to know my way in here. So I met with all these departments and geo, yeah, I love geography, geography and maps. So this project we came up with or I came up with is the idea of a digital story map that would be available to anyone that would show the earth with no political boundaries, the land and place native poets. We had to go with contemporary native poets and we only have about 50 because we have to do capacity and it shows where they live and they, there'll be, um, mar- they'll, uh, be pop-ups where they read their poetry, they'll read a poem, talk about place, and that uh, Norton decided to do uh, a text for that called Living Nations, Living Words. So that will be up and running. I think that in May, by May, and everyone will be able to access it. But it was important as poet laureate and as a human being and as an American citizen to say, you know, what are the roots of literature in this country they do go back to indigenous nations. Mm -hmm. They do go back, we have tremendous traditions of poetry. So that's a start. But then I wanted to show how everybody was influenced by whom we all have ancestors. We have physical ancestors or familial, but we also have like poetry ancestors or ancestors of social rights organizations, (laughs) you know, corporate there's ancestors. And so once you start looking at those lines of influence I, I was telling the staff I would like to link to every poet in this country, and it's like we can't do that't we don't, we don't have enough staff, but it's really cool because couldn't you imagine a network between all of these dots on this map that is without the without these political boundaries which cause so much trouble and are really uh, imag- they' they're not real they're kind of most of them are made of false narratives anyway. So, so who are your dots? Who, who, uh, who would you link to? Okay. Immediately I think of Louis Armstrong, but that's music. (laughs) I know, you know, and, and, uh, let's see, I would link to Simon Ortiz to Leslie Silko, As I mentioned, I would have to have a link to Toni Morrison too. Even though she was a novelist, She was also, I think she was a poet novelist, even though she wouldn't call herself a poet. Audre Lorde, Adrienne Rich, Yates. There's someone else I've been pulling up, I was talking. I had to do a little video on small presses and Kofi, one of the books I carried around with me for a long time was a Ghanaian poet, Kofi Awanoor. And it was a little chapbook he did called, "Ride Me Memory. Because when I first started writing, as an indigenous poet of the Americas, I thought, but who in the world is writing poetry from indigenous, you know, with an indigenous root? So I went to Africa and it was very inspired by poets there and writers, Amos Tutuola, the palm wine drinker. And, and then my, my links would just go all over the world. I mean, one of my favorite poets is Ali Kobe Ekerman. She's Australian Aboriginal poet You know, because the you know, like with the arts, we don't. We we generally, I think, the arts move outside political boundaries. We speak across those kinds of boundaries. So that's just there's a lot. There are many, many more links that I would have. There would be uh, Emily Dickinson. Um, There would be people. You know, the creators of songs in our Muscogee Creek traditions who we've long lost the names of who wrote those songs. And in some instances, um, they would say they're not important. It's the songs that are. Well, that is, I think when we post this
0: um, talk, we're going to have to post the links to all of your wonderful uh, suggestions. Those are amazing. I'd like to, you've mentioned a couple of times about your um, musical interests. And I know that you took up the saxophone in your 40s, I believe. Um, Can you talk about how music operates within uh, your life? How you came to be a musician later in life? And how music both is similar to poetry, but also different from poetry?
1: I always love music, always. I'm more of a dancer. People don't know that. I'm I dance almost every day different. And my mother, I grew up hearing music. My mother was a singer and wrote songs. And I remember I loved the Underwood typewriter that sat on our kitchen table when she was writing, not always, used usually food. She was still always did a lot of cooking. And um so So I love music, that's how I came to poetry. She loved poetry too. Like I think of it as talk singing and she loved that. So she imparted that love and she was a good, my parents are both great dancers. So she imparted that love to me. So when I was in, I think fifth grade, I I got a a clarinet and uh, I didn't have any lessons. Once a week, somebody would come and get our little band together and we would have to play through these exercises and in sixth grade then i went to junior high and i remember i was in the junior high band the first year and the band teacher said he wanted someone to play saxophone and he wouldn't let i wanted to play he wouldn't let girls play so i got mad and around the same time my stepfather caught me singing in my room and said there will be no more singing in this house because my mother would sing too but as soon as we knew his car was coming up we would stop the whole house would go silent so when he caught me, I didn't hear him drive up. I got, so I just walked away from music. So it was poet, poetry came to me. And of course, poetry always comes with music on one arm and dance on the other. <laughs> so there they came. And I was actually living in Denver and I, I picked up, an, uh, it was a tenor sax there and asked somebody to show me the G blues scale And I started kind of fooling around, and then it wasn't until uh, 19, I think my first, around 1990, 91, about 91, I was 40. I turned 40 in 91, I think, um, is that I started playing saxophone. And people who had known me as a poet would come and say, you can't do this. what you're going to one of my biggest fans and she's been there all along and my Italian translator says you're going to why are you distracting yourself <laughs> you know and but they did that when I wanted to be a poet you know I <laughs> said so you can't be a poet you will starve it, but it took oh I'd always love the sound of the horn I'd always love that sound because I could sing with a horn like Aretha Franklin you know, I'd say, well, I kept up with it. And I had a band, I started a band, Joy to Poetic Justice. And then I play out with, I just play out with whomever. You know, I play out with really, I always get the best musicians because I learn that way. I get musicians better than me. And uh, so it's developed. I'm working on a new album right now called uh, This Morning I Pray for My Enemies. And it's just like, to me, this is my dream album. I'm working with a producer, Barrett Martin. But, you know, I've never seen poetry, music, or dance very far away from each other. So,
0: This Morning I Pray for My Enemies brings to mind another poem of yours. Yes. I don't know if you have that one with you that you could read.
1: I do. This morning I pray for my enemies. And whom do I call my enemy? An enemy must be worthy of engagement. I turn in the direction of the sun and keep walking. It's the heart that asks the question, not my furious mind. The heart is the smaller cousin of the sun. It sees and knows everything. It hears the gnashing, even as it hears the blessing. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. An enemy who gets in risks the danger of becoming a friend.
0: (sighs) A piece like that um, draws us together and reminds us of what we share. I'm so grateful to you for that at this time when division feels so challenging and in order to fight for justice, it seems like the people that we are trying to communicate with are the enemies. Have you, um, certainly that poem does this, but can you talk about how you have thought about words, poetry, story as a way to reach across difference and into other cultures, into other ways of thinking?
1: I think that's what poets and artists do without thinking. I mean, I think that's in the in, inherent in the nature of, of poetry. I mean, thinking about that poem too, it's full of Muscogee and cultural references. And at the same time, it's very human we all know that and we all have that experience. And that's where we have to, you know, ultimately land as in, ultimately we have to land in compassion or that's, that's the point, you know, or not, it's not even a point, it's more like a circle. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think about it a lot, you know, because I, and I have another poem called, no, no. Were
0: that with us?
1: I will, I will, because there's a place in it where I think, well, uh, where it says, and like a fool, I expected our words might rise up and jam the artillery, artillery in the hands of dictators. Mm. So this is called No. I don't think I need to talk, say to preface it anymore. No. Yes, that was me. You saw shaking with bravery with a government issued rifle on my back. I could not greet you as you deserve my relative. They were not my tears. I have a reservoir inside. They will be cried by my sons, my daughters if I can't learn how to turn tears to stone. Yes, that was me standing in the back door of the house of the alley with fresh corn and bread for the neighbors. I did not see, foresee the flood of blood. How they would forget our friendship would return to kill the babies and me. Yes, that was me whirling on the dance floor. We made such a racket with all that joy. I loved the whole world with that silly music. I did not realize the terrible dance in the staccato of bullets. Yes, I smelled the burning grease of corpses and like a fool, I expected our words might rise up and jam the artillery in the hands of dictators. We had to keep going. We sang our grief to clean the air of turbulent spirits. Yes, I did see the terrible black clouds as I cooked dinner and the messages of the dying spelled there in the ashy sunset. Everyone addressed mother. There was nothing about it in the news. Everything was the same. Unemployment was up. Another queen crowned with flowers. Then there were the sports scores. Yes, the distance was great between your country and mine, yet our children played in the path between our houses. No, we had no quarrel with each other.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. So I feel like after each poem, I want to take a half an hour to sit with it <laughs> and to to absorb it and to think about the imagery and to um, to to let it go go deep. And I'm wondering if you could talk about in this world where we as communicators are trained to get into the sound bite and to go quickly and to jump right in with that uh, advertising style language to grab people and get their attention. Um, What is your recommendation to us as we think about using some of the tools of poetry to advance our missions um, in the organizations where we work?
1: Just something you were saying just now, and I was thinking about how and I know about sound bites and I know about my uh, propensity to go against them <laughs> <laughs> naturally, even though I've learned to make sound bites, is that it's like anything that is is meant to be quick and uh, tasty, maybe easy, that's what you're going to get. And that poetry works against that because like you were saying, it's, it's, it's in the nature of poetry, it's not just mine, but it's, it's it's overall in the nature of poetry to create a resonance, sort of like a time resonance or a resonance of, uh, to create a resonance that goes past any kind of political rhetoric, you know, that goes past any kind of, um, that it even moves past that artillery, you know, into history. So I've been, I was thinking too, and it's not just me. I, 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 I'm learning to speak some of my Muscogee language. I usually use it in songs more often than in poetry. And then I've I've lived, I lived in Hawaii almost 12 years and I was around a lot of the, the language people. And then when I was at, at Indian school, well, at Indian school, I learned a little bit of Apache, but it, at the University of New Mexico, I got permission to use, to take I use navajo as my foreign language so i learned that i did learn, i used to speak navajo pretty well i can still understand a lot of it but and i've been i actually worked in a language photographing as a photographer i actually worked in a navajo language program for a while i've done a lot of jobs you as a poet you learn to you do a lot of jobs to make a living i mean i clean hospital rooms i've done all kinds of things so um but the thing everyone is saying, and then our Muskogee language people, is that the one thing you can go in and teach language in a classroom, but people in this contemporary world are losing a sense of metaphor. That the speakers, and I'm sure that's probably true in English too, with it texting, you keep, there's not a lot of room for metaphor in texting usually. You lose that. It's about speed, just like sound bites. It's about speed. It's about you know this um, um, a heavy thrust of a lot of stuff to 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 break through and to make a to make a uh, make a point or to make a resonant you know a quick resonant point. But what about metaphor, like proverbs? I was going to say proverbial. I wonder that must be connected. Proverbs, but those tasty thing that those like like the poet of Rumi that stay with you forever. You know, what about metaphor and language?
0: I have to ask, do you consider hip
1: hop to be poetry? Some of it. Some of that comes out of very old, you know, the roots of hip hop are very old. You know, very old roots that come out of, that's, you know, they directly link to, you know, indigenous orality. And the love for for language and making puns and and you know perceptive um, you know the, the best of it, I'm saying not all of it you know the best of it, and making perceptive uh observations on you know regarding social change or lack thereof and and uh, the the state of the you know the state of the nation, so to speak, the best of it. Yeah.
0: So the audience that that we're speaking with today are people who are charged with oftentimes listening to community and then translating the needs of the community uh, to a broader world. And we're in foundations and nonprofit organizations are in every community Mm -hmm. um, really around the world, and we're all trying to help. Birth of a better world for um, for our various communities. So, what would you implore us to do if you 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 now have a an ability to 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 share what you would implore the folks at foundations with lots of resources at nonprofits who are working deeply in community. What what is uh, what is it that you would ask us to be on behalf of our communities?
1: Oh man, this is, uh, I think about that a lot. I'm chair of the board for Native Arts and Cultures Foundation, which it was a dream. I mean, that organization, I saw it years and years and years ago. I didn't institute it, I'm one of the founding board members. So it all came about that I saw that there was going to be this organization. And I think, one, that we're all a community. I think that we're all a community. I think what brings us all together is that we're all, we all, what binds, what I guess connects everyone is that we're all working towards, it's about communication, ultimately. It's about listening. I think that would be the first thing. I think that's the first thing for all of us. And when the spirit of poetry came to me, it said, you poor thing. I don't know if we're going to take you on or not, because you don't know how to listen. And I'm not the best listener. I try and I keep trying. I think that's why the music, you have to listen. It's about you have to listen. Poetry, you have to listen. And I think that that's too maybe the central role of those, you know, of the organization, all of our organizations. is about listening to what it is, one, what we're doing why we're doing it, how we're doing it. Uh, we have to listen to the past, even as we're listening to the future. And, uh, and pay attention too, to the roots. You know, you were talking, I'm glad that you did the land acknowledgement at the first. It becomes tricky when you're, you know, everybody is everywhere, <laughs> you know, and it's like, wait a minute, the, you know, we, we are the land. Ultimately, you're going to realize that this is not, it's not, this land is my land, it's not your land. It's like, if you look at the earth from the context, all about context from, from, that's why that NASA image that certain, suddenly there was the ecological movement. Suddenly there was people talking about global was when that image of earth was set free. You know, so yeah, so ultimately you have to listen and to be you know, to keep that in mind, that beautiful, blue, uh, green, compassionate planet with all the complexity, because the challenges are how we grow our spiritual and physical and muscle. You know, it's, I mean, that's the end result. And there's so much to be done. And all of us are going through such Right now we're all going through such challenging times, but it's in these moments, and that's where we especially need everybody. We need everybody. It's at those moments that the best stories emerge. You know, I've I've wondered what humans mean. I mean, and that's why I know we need poetry. <laughs> you know, what what use are humans on this earth? I wonder that. If you think about it, that bio, this immense biosphere. And you see the trees doing their beautiful job. And and you see that, you know, animal, each everybody, you can see how everybody's doing their jobs. And what are humans? <laughs> you know, here are these humans. How are they furthering this? Or are they stacking up trash or digging and destroying? Or I think you have to keep that in mind and then realize that the children are all our children. That's what I was taught as a Muscogee Creek person is that they're all our children, doesn't matter uh, your neighbors or another person of another cult, they're all of our children, we're here for all of them, the grandchildren and that our relatives are also the plants, you know, you have to start thinking and knowing that it's not just thinking it, that's the reality, you know, and what is going to be helpful and what is going to forward particularly in such an incredibly diverse world because you have this biosphere, but we have this incredible diversity. Well, I think, what do humans do? We write poetry, we tell the story. We're story makers. I started thinking, well, what do humans do? We go out and we gather stories. Everybody does it. Whether it's um, smoke signals, you know, or phone, or texting, or turning a TV on, used to, or a radio, or firing up the computer. Uh, yelling at you across the fence at your neighbor, we're, we collect stories. And we're part of maybe collecting the story of earth and the story of each other and helping the story along in a way that empowers in all the ways that, in all the ways that we work towards empowerment of our communities, of um, people you know in our communities the the uh, environment the water the land but in all of it it's important to remember the you know that the original keepers of the lands are the indigenous peoples and not to forget that and we all have to face that's what we're dealing with right now is a struggle to deal with the hard parts of the story of america but If you know, if you know, as a healer, if there's a wound, there's a lot of things that need to happen. Often the wound needs to be cleaned out, has to be cleaned out. And then the the physical healer always gets the story. That's a really important part of it. How did this come to be? We need to hear all of it. It's not going to heal if we don't have all the parts of the story. And then it can be cleaned. You know, it can be cleaned, and then with the, after the healing, then we'll all have a party. That is
0: a an incredible call to all of us to listen and to do the most human of things, which is to be a storyteller. I I love that idea. I um, was reading the writer, the the writer and thinker Richard Rohr, the other day. Uh, he said something about what it, what would it be if we found out that the animals were the ones who were really actually doing what they were supposed to do here and humans were completely confused and <laughs> hadn't found it yet. But maybe it's the storytelling that we've always done and that sometimes seems to get marginalized as a as a uh, way of connecting with each other. So I'm interested uh and this question has come in through the chat do you make poetry for other people or do you make it for yourself is it a conversation with yourself or is it a conversation with your ancestors or the world or
1: i think first it's i think the poetry was a way for the old ones to teach me I had, you know, I was a wreck. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a way to, you know, it's a is a way for them to get through to me, but it's um but it's also it's become it's a tool I've learned that it certainly it teaches me and I learned things long before, you know, they've been poems not just to help me, but other people. At the same time, they're art, pieces of art. You know, and I think that my original impulse really was as a healer, as my original impulse. And then I love language. I love I love music. I love I love playing music, and it's a way to p- kind of put everything together like that. Images I like to paint. We'll put the images. It's it's a way to pull all of that together. But um, and then it's something beyond me. It's not something I feel like I chose to do. It's like okay, we need somebody to do this, and I'm sitting over there hiding out, trying to be the one they don't notice, <laughs> you know. And and then and then there I get dragged. I used to have a horrible stage fright, and then I get dragged in, and I think okay, oh I like this. I try to oh, okay, okay, and then it just kept going, and I had to follow it. In my memoir, the new memoir, I have a a passage about when I said no when I told that deep inner spiritual circle that we all have, I call him the council. And I said, no. And then what followed? I won't tell you. <laughs>
0: yeah. Wait to read it.
1: <laughs> yeah, to read the book. <laughs> oh,
0: well, we all, I know that I've read crazy brave, which is your first memoir and incredible work. I highly recommend it to everyone. You, um, the way that you bring poetry and song and history and uh, and then the story of your family is together is just um, it's it's gorgeous. So, I'm wondering if you could talk about um, how your family story and the you you certainly do this in Crazy Brave how that has carried you through to now you're, at, you're a poet laureate, you're talking to people all over the world. Um, and what's the connection between that little girl in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, and the woman who is out uh, on the stages of the
1: world? Man, it's been quite a journey. I think if anything, I want it to be inspire people. Because I know there were times I gave up or I write about it in Crazy Brave where I was a teenage mother and we had nothing. Walking, I'd walk the streets and then those old ones would be telling, what in the, what did you get into? You know, why, why didn't you listen, <laughs> you know? And I thought, how am I gonna, I know I have a path, but how am I going to get there if I have, excuse me, my computer, I forgot to plug in my computer. (laughs) How are we going to get there? How are you going to get there now? So this will be interesting and they'll stand and watch us. (laughs) They stand and watch us, I've learned as we flounder and say, okay, sometimes it's several ancestors watching. Okay, what is she going to do here? Just like in a story, we all have our stories. What's going to happen here and then they'll think oh no <laughs> oh, no don't go that way <laughs> but you know we would have no movies or anything if 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 the if the character didn't so maybe i was here to make a good story <laughs> you know a good story but i wouldn't be here without my people you know the ones my father's family and then my mother's family and my father's family did not want him marrying her because she was came from sharecroppers was you know really poor uh they love poetry and music uh she was you know a mix a cultural mix that included i I learned later chickasaw too i found out a great grandfather was part chickasaw was a chickasaw enrolled citizen and then there was a Cherokee and Irish and, and French. And then my father's family from this very prominent historically in the tribe family. And they had money because of the oil. And it's like, no, but what's gonna come out of this? This is contradictions. And as I said, in Crazy Brave, she was fire and he was water. What does that make, <laughs> you know? Makes for steam and and, you know, but that's that's what makes a good a good you know that's what makes a good poem or a good story is you know, okay, how do we solve these things like right now, we're gonna throw up we're gonna start a pandemic in the world. You talk about global, then we're gonna see what global is. You want to talk about democracy, well, then we' are gonna have a little test here. We're gonna test you <laughs> and see. How what democracy is you, you want to talk about diversity and equality? And we're going to have another test. We're going to do all we're going to run these all at the same time. <laughs> we're going to see what this is. So that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. I think so. I think we just have a trickster god who's like, <laughs> okay, the, the grand story maker, you know, or a whole council of story makers for this mess. Well, that would
0: uh, explain a lot, I think. <laughs> so um, another question that has come in, what is your favorite word and
1: why? I don't know that I have a favorite word. It'd be, It's like asking your favorite. Who's your favorite child <laughs> yeah. and why? You know, they all have their their characteristics. I know as I'm writing this, that there are certain words I'm saying, what are they that I'm having to cut out? One of the words I'm going through and cutting out is haunted. I've had to cut. I'm thinking I've got too many haunteds in here. So I'm going through.
0: Why do you think that word is coming up for you so much?
1: Well, it's a memoir. (laughs) I'm going back. And then there's another word I've always tried to cut is world. I use that way too much. There was a time when I was using the word beautiful all the time, but I'm a romantic. And so there's words that come up that I start overusing and I'm aware of them. I think, okay, well, you you're coming up because you need my attention. So I talk to them, you know, you're coming up, you need my attention. Let's um, you know, you're working way too hard. Why don't you sit over here for a little while? <laughs>
0: Well, we're getting close to our time here, um, and I'm wondering if um, we could start by, uh, or we could start our ending by asking you to share. um, If you could have each person leave this session and do just one thing, what would that be?
1: Maybe it's to sit with their spirit. Maybe you don't even know what your spirit looks like or what it sounds like. Or where it comes from or where it's going or where it's been. In my memoir, I was writing about how I was in a spin class. I just finished a spin class in West Hollywood. And I suddenly had this thought and I saw it, a donut. You know, like I finished the spin class. But then, you know, we get these thoughts and we'd always think about them. And I thought a donut and I thought, no, wait a minute, that's not mine. It occurred to me that I wasn't going to go get a donut. It was somebody else's. So I traced, I followed that thought and it was the guy next to me. And then it was so profound. It was like, oh, my gosh, where do my thoughts come from? They're not all my thoughts. Some of them I could trace to you can trace them to, you know, ancestors. I've been through dreams that I know were experiences that my ancestors went through. I've had uh, I've traced them to plants. It's it, so I would just I think it's important, and we don't do that enough, and even I get lost sometimes is is to sit and, and you know, you might want to write. Everybody can write in this thing, you know. Where am I? where 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 am I? Where's my spirit? Is it sitting? Is it hid? Is it hiding in my shoulder? You know, what is it? What is it telling me? What is, what do, I, do I hear anything? What do I hear? So yet again,
0: the listening. Yes. Listening is the essential calling for all of us as we think about communicating mm-hmm. it is time for us to listen and it has been an incredible joy to listen to you joy <laughs> 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 i'm sure people have done that before um, that it is uh it's just been wonderful to hear your thoughts and to hear your poetry and um if you have any final words for us, any final recommendations of poets or books, uh, we'd love to hear them. But um, what would you how would you like to close?
1: Well, I would say that that um, the anthology of native to hear the native voices of the these lands here would be to get to pick up that anthology, all the none of the editors. We have not we're not paying ourselves all the, the money made from it will go to native poetry. And that way you can hear many voices, not just me carrying on here, because I'm not the only one. There are, I'm just a doorway. There are many, many, many voices, native voices, voices of poetry everywhere. Every, you know, the poets are our tooth tellers are really the listeners. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed spending some time with you, and I wish I could see everyone, too.
0: Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here, Joy.
1: Thank you.